This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 27th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Glenn Weil discusses academia's role in online services that match us to our desires. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on some unusual cave formations. This is a very exciting find, and I'm not going to give it away right away. Um, Decapitated stalagmites arranged in circles in a French cave. Dave, what are we looking at, and when was this first discovered? Well, this was discovered deep within a French cave in the early 1990s. And basically what we're looking at here, and you can see a picture of this, actually a couple pictures of it on the site, are essentially a scattering of small, deliberately arranged heaps of stone, along with two large rings, one that's about 2.2 meters across, and the other that's nearly three times that size. There's about 400 stalagmites in these piles. They're all about similar size, and the total weight is more than two tons. So this is a lot of stone. The stalagmites have been decapitated and cut off from the cave. And when I look at the pictures, it really looks like when you kind of lay up branches in a pile trying to make a fence, but you're not great at it. And the big surprise is how long these piles and rings have actually been arranged this way. Right. When the researchers did some radioactive dating, they discovered that the piles, the structures rather, were built sometime between 175 and 177 thousand years ago. So here's the big surprise. That is before our modern human ancestors left Africa. That's right. 
So what does that mean, Dave? It means aliens did it. (laughs) (laughs) What it means probably or more likely is that Neanderthals did it because Neanderthals were believed to be in the region around this time and we were not. And this is the first time a structure that most likely was uh, created by Neanderthals has been dated. This seems to be, this is surprising to me. I've never actually seen a picture of a Neanderthal structure before. Is this something that's pretty unexpected? It is unexpected. A lot of the reason we don't find Neanderthal structures is because they didn't survive. There were uh, environmental factors that that are believed to have destroyed a lot of Neanderthal campsites. And so we don't really have many, if any, surviving structures, which makes this really cool because, A, it was so deep underground that it was preserved, but B, the building material they're using here, stone essentially, is going to hold up for a long, long time. Next up, we have a story on a surge in cephalopods. As the environment changes, animals adapt or don't. And it looks like recent changes in the world's oceans, rising temperatures, acidification, overfishing, have been favoring some of my favorite animals. Uh, Cuttlefish. Oh, and octopuses and squid. I guess those are okay, too. I can have a favorite. Um, Right, Dave? You can have a favorite. These are all cephalopods. And what's interesting about cephalopods or what's sort of mysterious about them is we really don't have much information about how their numbers have changed in the oceans over the decades. There have been some studies that have come out, but the time frames have been pretty limited and the techniques that were used to get at these numbers were kind of unreliable. And what they did here was really carefully look at fishery records all over the world. It was kind of a treasure hunt, actually, and, and they did find an increase, right? Yeah, they looked at more than 60 years of data. And they found that cephalopods are booming in the oceans. Their numbers have really increased significantly since the 1950s. And is there an explanation for why these particular animals are doing so well? These are very short-lived animals. They typically only live one or two years, so they can adapt very quickly to changes in their environment. And so it could be that we have warming oceans, we have more polluted oceans, and that the cephalopods are somehow responding to this in a way that's actually increasing their numbers. Other factors, like maybe we're hunting the animals that are eating cephalopods. And, and the rising temperatures themselves could actually be boosting cephalopod growth rate, reproductive cycle, things like that. Some of the headlines regarding this research are pretty bombastic, you know, basically implying that it's only a matter of time until the world is wall-to-wall octopus. Why is that an unrealistic idea? Well, for one thing, cephalopods are eating a lot, but they're also eating each other. They tend to be a bit cannibalistic. So scientists think that as their numbers increase, certain controls will jump in like that that will keep octopuses, cuttlefish, and squid from taking over the seas. Lastly, we have a story on a controversial Alzheimer's hypothesis. The conventional wisdom on Alzheimer's disease is that it is caused by the buildup of plaques in the brain. These plaques are made up of a misfolded protein fragment called amyloid beta. Okay, here's where the new idea comes in. These plaques are part of a protective mechanism gone awry. That's the idea, anyway. This form of amyloid actually has a purpose and... There's somehow evolutionary support for this idea, Dave? Yeah, this is a pretty interesting idea. I mean, we always think of amyloid beta as being this very bad thing. When it misfolds, it can form these sticky plaques around neurons that can be very 
disruptive, lead to the symptoms of Alzheimer's, not only in people, but also in dogs, I learned. So we tend to think of it as a very bad thing. But these researchers in this study had some preliminary evidence that it actually might have a silver lining. The researchers compare amyloid beta to other bacteria-killing protein fragments called antimicrobial peptides. And beta amyloid does kill microbes in a dish. But what about inside an animal? Yeah, what they did here, Sarah, was they took a mice that had been genetically modified to overexpress or produce excess amounts of amyloid beta. And these mice are actually used as a model for Alzheimer's in people. And then they injected salmonella bacteria, which can be pretty dangerous, into the brains of these mice to cause an infection. Now, unfortunately, all the mice died, both the mice that were overproducing amyloid beta and the controls that were not. But what was interesting is those that were overproducing the amyloid beta lost less weight, they had fewer bacteria in their brains, and they lived up to roughly 30 hours longer than the controls. And they were able to show a similar effect in worms, worms. right? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, this is controversial. Now that it's been seen in an animal, is there less objection out there? Well, I think this will probably sway some critics. What the researchers say they've encountered resistance from is places like the pharmaceutical industry, which is really sort of trying to develop a drug for Alzheimer's. And if scientists start saying, or if some scientists start saying, well, maybe amyloid beta does something good, maybe it's something a little bit more like cholesterol, perhaps, where you don't want to completely eliminate it. Having a little bit is actually good. You just don't want to have too much. That creates some complications for creating drugs. My big question reading this is, wouldn't this have been noticed before? So if you have an infection, amyloid beta goes into effect and starts to plaque up around it, and then you have someone with Alzheimer's, and then eventually they die, and you look at their brain, wouldn't you have seen that they had an infection? Yeah, it's a great point. And the researchers say nobody's really looked at this in a systematic way yet. It could be, I mean, one possibility is not only do these amyloid beta proteins help fight infections, but maybe it's the infection because it triggers the formation, potentially triggers the formation of the amyloid beta that is the root cause of Alzheimer's and, and maybe other cognitive disorders. That's even more controversial. Yeah. And all of this will need a lot more work to bear out. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about bendable batteries, a, an advance that may help scientists better create those wristband computers everybody's been longing for. Also, a story about scientists solving the big sperm paradox. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how fire from spent fuel stored at a U.S. nuclear power plant could dwarf the impact of Fukushima. Also a story about why an ex-Microsoft billionaire is accusing NASA of bad math when it comes to asteroids. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. We're lucky to live in the age of the match. You need a ride, a song, a husband. There's an app that can match your needs to the object of your desire, with, of course, some margin of error. But much of this innovation is happening in the private sector. What is academia doing to contribute? I spoke with Glenn Weil about getting academics into the match game. 
So, Glenn, what's a matching market? Can you give us some examples of these types of markets online and maybe even offline? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, a matching market is one where you care about who you end up interacting with and not just whether you get a service or not. So, a great example is a taxi. You don't want a taxi to have to come from a really long distance to pick you up because then you'll have a long delay in your ride. And the same thing's true for the taxi driver. Advertising is another example. If you are really looking for something, an ad might be useful. Otherwise, it's just annoying. And, you know, looking for a mate is obviously another great example of that. And most of these markets have both online and offline analogs. So you have a standard yellow cab. And then you have Uber. Mm-hmm. You have the advertisements you see on television and the newspaper that just get broadcast to everybody. And you have the right-hand side of Google, which is targeted exactly at you. And in dating, you have Tinder and you have the local bar. So these markets exist really in parallel, offline and online. But as you probably noticed even from the examples, they're quite different. Right. Yeah. And the big shift in this field seems to be in the technology what kinds of advances have been made so that this kind of problem is solved very much more easily, say, online? You know, I think really the crucial issue in matching markets is figuring out the information that you need to get an appropriate match. And in each of these different areas, that information is a little different. So if you think about Uber, the critical thing is location. Mm-hmm. You need to know where the cars are and know where the people are. So for that, GPS, tracking, and the ability to quickly enter in, you know, whether you're willing to pay a surge price or not mm-hmm. is really like the crucial elements, as well as the routing technology that they use to make sure that you get to your destination in the right way. But if you think about something like advertisements, it's not exactly where you are, it's what you're interested in buying. So that's a different sort of technology. It has more to do with learning by computers and statistical estimation. But in both cases, what's common is that they're able to figure out and process the information that's necessary to know what sort of person or product you want to interact with. Yeah, it doesn't seem like much of that will be going on, say, in the bar scene or even in the yellow cab situation. Of course, uh, there are famously matchmakers in history, and this is basically finding an automated way to do that uh, much more accurately. Yeah. One of the main thrusts of this piece that you're publishing is that academia needs to participate more in these markets. And you give the example of the way Uber's pricing algorithm might be tweaked by someone who has a a different background than the people running the algorithm now. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So a lot of these markets were started by startups and they came up with really creative solutions, but often ones that were a little bit improvised. So if you look at Uber, a really classic story that any Uber driver will tell you is that when there's you know an upsurge in demand, there will be surge pricing that goes into effect. And that will lead lots of drivers to come into the area chasing, quote unquote, chasing the surge. Mm. But the problem is once they arrive, often the surge is gone and they get very disappointed. And this is actually something that economists have known happens in markets for a long time. Back to the era when it was really commodities markets, Uh, prices would go up for wheat and then all sorts of farmers would try to plant more wheat. But by the time it got to market, the price would be down again. There are some classic economic solutions to try to deal with this problem of not allowing markets to fluctuate and instead try to find sort of an equilibrium point, a price that's high enough to bring in the 
drivers that you need, but not so high as to bring in so many drivers that the surge is gone by the time they arrive. Right. And this is something you feel that the people working in a startup might not take advantage of this this background knowledge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they did something smart given the limited knowledge that they had and the complex problems that they needed to solve. And they integrated lots of different things. They integrated technology to display this and computers to calculate it and economics to get the basics right. But they're, you know, they don't have the expertise to have the full background to really figure out an optimal solution. And I really think that's what academics, both from computer science and economics, can add. Right. Another uh, follow-up on this is the idea that academics could contribute to how to regulate these markets. And maybe that's not something that industry is studying so hard. Um, <laughs> what kind <laughs> yeah, of contributions exactly. could they make there? Well, you know, there are really a lot of controversies over these markets, as you're probably aware. Uber, Airbnb, these are all very controversial services. They're mm-hmm. really affecting the economy. And, you know, one source of that controversy is the fact that these network industries, these industries, these matching markets, they tend to be monopolistic. And the reason is that the more people are on the market, the better it works. Right. The more density of cabs you have, the shorter everyone needs to wait. And so there's a natural tendency for them to cluster into a single monopoly. And, you know, that naturally calls for regulation in terms of prices so that people don't get ripped off, in terms of controlling excessive profits to some extent. But I think even more important is that these services are really taking over important areas of the public sphere all over our lives. You know, Facebook is conditioning how we speak. Um, Uber is conditioning how people are able to get around cities and and how handicapped people are treated and how the labor force is structured. And I don't think that those are questions that any private company should be able to determine on its own because they're really shaping the whole way that areas of society work. Mm. So even more than the economic regulation, I think there's a real need for there to be democratic accountability for companies that are really controlling a whole sector of society, even though it may be necessary for them to be monopolies in the public interest, it's also necessary for those monopolies to be transparent and accountable to the public. Right. Sometimes it seems to me that these markets are so, they take off because they are doing something that just doesn't have regulation applied to it. So they're taking advantage of an unregulated space to do the same services that have already been heavily regulated in cabs, for example, where there's just this history of heavy regulation. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I don't think it's necessarily that they're getting around regulation, even though in some cases they are. It's more that there's just a basic mismatch between the evolution of the technology and the existing regulation. And this is something we see over and over again throughout history. And I think what these guys have really done and what it calls for is, you know, they've come up with a way of organizing this that's much more efficient, that's inconsistent with the existing regulatory framework. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need a regulatory framework. It desperately needs one. It just needs one that's adapted to the new technology. And my hope is that these companies will realize that and actually embrace the notion of being regulated in a way that's appropriate to the service that they're providing. You also suggest that somehow academia can 
get this transparency for us in a different way besides helping with regulation. Um, you know, I do think it's unfortunate we don't get a close look at some of the most important algorithms in our life. I'm looking at Google and, you know, Facebook for some people who use that for their news, their news source. Do you see a more collaborative relationship between industry and public institutions or do you see, you know, researchers publishing their own algorithms out there so that they can be used in competition? Well, you know, I think fundamentally the issue of transparency goes well beyond the idea of academic collaboration. I think that these companies, I mean, Facebook in many ways is your identity, even more than your ID card is these days. I mean, the number of places online where you use Facebook to identify yourself, the number of places online where you use Amazon for payment, the number of places online where you use Google as your way of looking for information or Twitter as a way of speaking. These technology platforms are taking over traditional public functions and maybe improving them, but there has to be transparency about that in exchange for the tremendous profits that these companies have been able to make by occupying those central social positions. I think there has to be transparency to make sure that they're designing those things in ways that serve the public interest and that are subject to democratic debate because we don't all agree about these issues. Well, how do you think that aspect relates to academia? Well, I think that academics, because they are open, because they are participants in the intellectual debate in a public way, they're fundamentally part of the democratic process in a way that is much less true of most of these companies that are mostly interested in protecting their private interests. And that, that is their function. But the power of academia is that it can distribute these ideas, allow them to be debated in a democratic way, and maybe eventually force open some of these companies into a more public dialogue. Okay. Well, you're a researcher at Microsoft at the moment, on leave from the University of Chicago. Are you following your own advice? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I found Microsoft to be a fabulous environment for interdisciplinary collaboration. I'm surrounded here by sociologists, anthropologists, computer scientists, uh, mathematicians, and there's really no place I've ever worked before where all those people were really trying to exchange ideas about producing workable solutions to practical problems that are really transforming society in terms of technology. So I think that's a great model. There aren't that many of these sort of open, academically inclined research labs out there. I'm hoping that there will be more in the future, but I think that they really play a fundamental public service because there's not the opportunity to have this sort of interdisciplinary collaboration in most academic environments. And there's not the opportunity to have this openness and really thinking about research and the public interest in most corporate labs. So I think Microsoft's a, a very special place, and, and I hope it'll be the model for other uh, collaborations of this sort in the future. Okay, Glenn, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Sarah. This, the pleasure was really all mine. Glenn Weil is a senior researcher at Microsoft and a professor of economics and law at the University of Chicago. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. 
The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.